Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Multimedia Experience. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Trexler. Uh, I want to introduce a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This obviously used to be known as the Stronger by Science podcast, but now, as some of our viewers can tell on YouTube, we have a video component now. We're going to try this out. Uh, experimentation is the backbone of science, or so they tell me. So uh, we're going to see how this goes, try to get some video along with the audio for our podcasts. Uh, I've got a great show planned for today, a lot of good segments. But before we get into that, a uh, couple announcements. So first of all, something that we are really excited about is we have the big Macro Factor live release party. Um, that is going to be right here on our YouTube channel uh, via live stream. We're going to do that September 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, put on, you know, that you got the, the little app on your phone, the world clock, just whatever time it is in New York, that's the time it is here. So we're going 8 p.m. Eastern time, September 16th. That's going to be great. It's going to be part celebration, um, part infomercial, and a little bit of, uh, <laughs> we're going to you know answer some live questions as well. Uh, keep it largely nutrition focused, but we can throw some training stuff in there as well if we want. Yeah, like just imagine Billy Mays wasn't just doing cocaine before filming, but actually while filming. Uh, <laughs> and that, that'll basically be the, the vibe we're going for. Exactly. Yeah. As the famous saying goes, there ain't no party like a Greg and Eric party. That is the saying. Uh, so, and the, you know, it's going to be great. We've, we've been putting the app together for a really long time, working on it, getting it finalized. And so the 16th is when uh, it launches. So if you're interested in checking it out, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash macro factor. Right now, there's even like a little countdown there. And every time I open that page, I uh, get a little bit nervous, you know, it, good kind of nervous jitters for the big uh, for the big launch. We think you, we think everybody's going to love it, so we're excited to uh, finally get that out of beta testing and into the hands of the public. So stop by for the celebration. Stop by to get some information about nutrition. Stop by to learn more about the app. It should be a really fun show. The last thing I want to mention is uh, go over to bulksupplements.com. Use the discount code SBSPOD in all caps for a five percent discount on your supplement order. So, Greg, road to the stage. How are things going? Oh, I'd say things are going pretty well. Um, I I would say I'm fully back in the swing of things after uh, vacation and after being sick for a while. Uh, my weight trend is the lowest it's ever been. Um, occasionally waking up below 245 now, which is nice. Uh, and yeah, so I, I don't really have much, much insight to add. Um, I would say the small win uh, for, for the past two weeks is that uh, one of the things that for me historically has been really important when I'm trying to lose weight is maintaining a really high level of activity. Uh, helps with appetite regulation. And uh, contrary to some things that people have commented on Instagram, exercise, I believe, does actually affect total daily energy expenditure. Um, so historically I've, I've been, uh, only moderately unsuccessful with losing weight when I'm very active and, uh, very unsuccessful with losing weight when I'm not as active. Anyway, last few weeks have been crazy. Um, you know, we're, we're in the home stretch for the app, a lot of work to do, uh, haven't been as active, but, uh, still stay in the course, still losing weight at the rate that I want to. 
Um, so yeah, not not a huge thing, but I, I would count that as a small win. Nice. And yeah, you mentioned it's been crazy because we timed this really well leading up into the launch for Macro Factors, also like the busy time of the month writing for the mass research review. Uh, so it's been pretty crazy. Uh, now, I've got a little update for the uh, road to enlightenment. You know, all roads we travel are likely to involve some challenges. I'm going to run into some bumps along the road. Um, and my path uh, brought me to a challenge. So the road to enlightenment is my journey through secular Buddhism to chill out more, which is good. Um, but here's what's not chill, uh, both literally and figuratively. Uh during late August, my air conditioner just completely stopped working. Uh, so we live in North Carolina. The last several weeks, like basically ever since the day my air conditioner went out, we had like a 10-day stretch where it was like high 90s, 115% humidity. Uh, it, it's It was just super, super hot. And so that was a big challenge to uh, my attempt to become a little bit more zen uh so there were some wins and losses uh with that challenge to my path to enlightenment so on the good side uh, i genuinely did make peace with just not having air conditioning during what was really like the hottest weeks of the north carolina summer which i was uh, i don't know if a, a previous version of me could have done that you know like yeah. when you're used to that convenience and it's super hot it's easy to get fixated on like, dude, this timing sucks. I'm very uncomfortable. This is something I believe I deserve to have because I've mm -hmm. always had it. You know, you 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 kind of take those types of conveniences for granted. And then when they're taken away, you can really get mentally fixated on that and just be a miserable bastard. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like I did get to a point pretty quickly where I was like, hey, there's a lot of people who live in hot ass places who don't have air conditioning. And like, this is fine. We're not in danger. Yeah, it's going to be fine. So that was the good thing is, you know, in, in secular Buddhism and Buddhism broadly, they talk about the middle path where you don't need to rely on conveniences to bring you joy. You also don't have to discard all material possessions. You want to be right in the middle where you can enjoy some nice things, but you don't need them to be happy. Yeah. And I felt like that was a pretty cool thing. I kind of shed my attachment to that particular convenience. Now, here's where it went wrong. <laughs> uh, so I bought my house very recently, um, you know, which I'm of course very lucky to be able to buy a house. Like that was uh, a, a thing that I'm hugely thankful for. Um, but the reason I bring that up is the home is still under the home warranty and whatever calmness and Zen I had with regards to the air conditioner, the home warranty people, man, it was like, they were trying to get under my skin and yeah. boy, did they succeed. So that, that was insane. As you mentioned off air, I think home warranties are just completely a scam. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So that, that was quite a racket that pushed my uh, Zen Buddhist approach to the absolute limits. Uh, but overall, hey, I'll, I'll take a half half win. You know, we'll get better at the rest as we go. Sounds good to me. All right. So feats of strength. What do you got? Feats of strength. Yeah, I, I've only got one. Um, Part of that is that I was uh, doing my outline at about five in the morning and I had more important stuff I wanted to deal with than tracking down a bunch of feats of strength. Um, but also, you know what? I'm not even going to throw another ex excuse out there. Um, yeah, so I've got one today. Uh, it's about quality, not quantity. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's what we'll go with. 
Um, so yeah, uh, Thomas Davis, we've mentioned him on the podcast before. Uh, one of the, I would say currently alarming number of 700 pound benchers for the longest time. There were two, uh, and now there's like, it's dozen. going around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe 700 pound benching is the real pandemic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so he, I think he's hit 705 in a meet before. Uh, but recently on Instagram, he posted himself hitting uh, 702 pounds or about 318 and a half kilos for a double. Um, second rep, you know, looked very solid. Uh, it wasn't a big grinder or anything like that. Uh, but we'll we'll post the vi- uh, a link to the video in the show notes. And I strongly recommend checking it out and watching it. Uh, just purely, I would say for, for the wow factor of it, it might be the most violent bench press I've ever seen. Uh, and I, I say that as a compliment. And <laughs> when you watch the video, you will fully understand. Uh, he is, it, it looks like he is attempt, attempting to inflict great malice upon the bar. Um, so yeah, very impressive set. Uh, we might have another 750 pound bencher coming in the next year or so who's to say uh a lot of strong people out there and uh thomas davis is certainly one of them do we have an update on that big uh it was supposed to be the the two guys that were going for like 800 head to head do we know what happened with that event it hasn't happened yet oh it hasn't uh i think it's in january Oh, okay, cool. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, the uh, uh, Julius Maddox, Daniel Zamani yeah. face-off. Yeah, I I, th- I think that meet is either in December or January. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, moving on. I've got uh, a bit of a brief research review segment here where I'm going to talk about uh, two pieces of research that um, made some waves, you know, generally got picked up. Uh, by the media and then got, you know, tossed around a little bit on social media, you know, throwing the the links and the headlines around. So I wanted to address these just because so many people have been talking about them. Uh, the first one I want to cover is another paper that's largely being attributed to, to Ponser. Uh, although I wouldn't necessarily call it a paper by Ponser necessarily. So, um, in a previous, the most recent episode, we talked about that paper where Ponser was the lead author, where they were looking at metabolism across the lifespan. Um, so go back to the previous episode to get caught up to date on that particular research review. But in this case, it was the same group of researchers, but Ponser was not the lead author. In this case, he was the third author. But a lot of people are calling it the Ponser paper because uh he is an author, you know, third author usually indicates a very substantial contribution. So yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish that. Um, but this is an idea that Ponser really popularized. And he's, he's, if there's one idea he's known for, it's the topic of this paper. So mm-hmm. seeing his name in, in the top three on the marquee there, you know, a lot of people are, are calling it the Ponser paper uh, to some extent that that's appropriate. But I have seen papers in the past just being in academic publishing where like, you kind of know who did what on a project and like the person who's like lead author did like 96% of it. And everybody's calling it like someone else's paper. Cause they're like the most famous person on the paper, but they're like sixth out of 10, Yeah, you yeah. know? And I'm just like out of respect for the lead author, like, you know, let's make sure we're giving credit there. But yeah. 
Anyway, this paper came from that big group. Uh, they're using that data from the International Atomic Energy Agency double, doubly labeled water database. Uh, so this paper is by Caro, Halsey, Ponser, and a whole bunch of other people that are associated with that huge group. And they've actually had quite a few papers coming out. I've seen at least three over the last couple of weeks uh, utilizing this database, which is awesome because it's this database is a really cool resource. I'm glad that people are, are making good use of it. So in this particular study, you know, the previous one was looking at energy expenditure across the lifespan. This study is looking at energy compensation. So the general question here is if somebody increases their exercise or, or their activity thermogenesis, if they're expending more energy from physical activity, are they going to compensate and reduce other components of energy expenditure, uh, which really ties into Ponser's uh, constrained energy expenditure model, the mm -hmm. idea that you know, as you increase activity energy expenditure, you know, other components of energy expenditure, such as resting energy expenditure, will get constrained to kind of offset that to some extent. And so you mentioned that a uh, takeaway that a lot of people have had on the internet is like, because of this study, we now know that exercise doesn't increase your energy expenditure. Like yeah, your total. That's, that's a take that I've seen with uh, alarming levels of frequency. Yeah. So two specific instances where I've seen this is, you know, we use uh, activity level correction factors in the macro factor diet app when mm -hmm. trying to estimate your when you're just getting started and we don't have any data from you. It's, it's our kind of estimation process for your starting energy expenditure. We do have a correction factor for physical activity. And, and so some people have asked, why even bother? You know, and another thing that's come up that I've seen is. Uh, you know, just the, the general question, does this mean that exercise is useless in a weight loss program? Mm -hmm. um, now, with this particular paper, they used the uh, data from that big data set. In this case, they had uh, over 1,700 participants because they could only use data where they had the, the doubly labeled water information for total daily energy expenditure, but they also had resting energy expenditure measured via indirect calorimetry. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have that for every single individual in this data set. Uh, you know, with the last paper had like 6,000 participants or something like that. In this case, we're talking about 1,700, which is more than your typical caffeine study for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, exercise science, we're usually looking at like 20 or 30 people. So 1,700 if, is... If we're lucky. If, if we're lucky, yes. <laughs> yeah. So 1,700 is a lot. Um, yeah, get eight subjects, just say like, yeah, it's a pilot study. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, and so what, what they found here was that uh, the average energy compensation that was observed in this data set on average was about 28%. And so what that means is, you know, when people tried to, you know, increase their uh, activity, energy expenditure, uh, or increase their energy expenditure via physical activity, um, only about 72% of those extra calories really got added on to the total daily energy expenditure. So if they tried to increase their energy expenditure by increasing uh, 100 calories of physical activity, their total daily energy expenditure would only go up by about 72 rather than 100. So I, I just need to fact check something real quick. Sure. 72% is a, is a different number than 0%, right? Traditionally. Okay. Yeah. So 
basically what that indicates, again, that's the average there. So what that tells us is, you know, people who are increasing their physical activity, trying to burn some extra calories, they think they're increasing it by a hundred calories, but in mm -hmm. reality, it's only going up by, uh, what I say about 72 because mm -hmm. there's this 28% that's being compensated by reducing things like resting energy expenditure, either from basal energy expenditure or potentially a contribution from non-exercise activity as well. So reducing those basal processes, reducing non-exercise activity, those could be contributing to this compensation effect. Now, the effects were similar for males and females. They were similar for young participants and old participants, but they did seem to to differ based on body composition. So people that were in the 10th percentile of the BMI distribution compensated uh, to a magnitude of about 27, 28%. But when they looked at the 90th percentile, there was a compensation of about 49%. Uh, that's a pretty drastic difference going from uh, the people with lower body weight to the people with higher body weight. And so definitely that would reinforce this concept that people who are on the higher end of the BMI spectrum have a greater degree of compensation. So when they tried to increase their energy expenditure through 100 calories of physical activity, total daily energy expenditure uh, only went up by about half that rather than the entire 100 calories, just as a, a representative example. So the one thing that this paper cannot answer due to the observational nature is, uh, what's going on there? Um, is it the idea that as you increase adiposity and accumulate more weight and more body fat, does that increase compensation in a causative way? Or is it more likely that people who compensate more are more predisposed to accumulating more body weight and body fat across the lifetime. Since it's observational, we can't say which comes first in, in that kind of causative change. And we also can't rule out the possibility that something completely different is kind of contributing there. But my, if I had to guess, uh, I think it's more likely that individuals who have a high degree of compensation are probably more predisposed to accumulating more body fat over time. If I had to guess, uh, that would be where my money is at. But again, with an observational study like this, we can't really say necessarily which one comes first. Yeah. So th this is purely anecdotal. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit of both though. Yeah. Um, like as, as someone who has been quite large and also considerably smaller, my, my experience has been that, uh, just being like wiped out from exercise training, whatever did affect me less when I weighed less. And I think part of that is just simply like, dude, if you got more of yourself that you need to get up off the couch, it's a little bit harder to get up off the couch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I obviously wasn't doing like W labeled water experiments on myself for should have, though. continuously for the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think you are correct that it it is more that people who are predisposed to be larger probably do just inherently have larger compensations. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if if it's a little of column A and a little of column B, just based on my own experience. Yeah, totally possible. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of that in the future yeah. uh, with more research. So now you're totally caught up to speed on the whole uh, 
series of papers um, that have really caught the attention of the fitness industry out of that group. And again, the important thing to emphasize here, the compensation was not 100%. It is not the case that you know, you would look at this paper, look at the results and say, oh, I guess exercise doesn't increase total daily energy expenditure. Th that really has been one of one of the more confusing series of takes that I've that I've seen on social media probably ever. Honestly, wow. That's, that's no, pretty... like if you've been alive in the world ever and used your eyes, it should be clear <laughs> that exercising a lot does increase the amount of calories you burn to some degree. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, yeah, if, 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 if you, you if you've been on this earth for long enough to generate uh, observations, that should that should be painfully obvious Th that that is a more painful take to me than just about anything I've ever seen. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that I thought of is like, if you've ever hung out with an endurance athlete during a really high volume stretch of their training they eat a bagel every 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like they are just consuming <laughs> calories throughout the day, nonstop and uh, notoriously pretty slim endurance athletes. Typically. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty notable observation when you're like, dude, do you ever stop eating? And it's like, yeah, I ran like 40 miles this week. I'm pretty hungry. Yeah. You know, that is that even a high volume for endurance athletes? I, that would be a high volume for like a, a recreational yeah, runner. Yeah. The the pros are typically, I mean, it depends what distance you're talking about, but yeah. generally 70 plus, Whew. sometimes top in 100. That's a lot. Uh, all right. So the other study that I wanted to mention here, uh, my headline is the fake news vilification of hot dogs from a state up north. Uh, so this is research coming out of Michigan and we're not very fond of those uh, those individuals during football season because this is a strong Ohio State football podcast. Uh, we have not locked down that sponsorship yet, but we are working diligently. Um, so this is a study out of the University of Michigan, and it caught a lot of headlines because the, the kind of easy takeaway uh, was that a hot dog reduces uh, your healthy lifespan by like 36 minutes, give or take. Um, and so first of all, I want us to accept that at face value and kind of suspend any skepticism we might have. So if one hot dog reduces your healthy lifespan by 36 minutes um, and you said, you know what, I don't care. I really like hot dogs. I'm going to eat four a week for my entire life because it just means a lot to me, you know? So unless I messed up my numbers, I'm pretty certain that four hot dogs a week at 36 minutes a pop if you continue that habit for 70 years of your life, you would lose one year on the back end. Uh, seems like a not that bad of a trade-off to me personally. I mean, I don't eat hot dogs anymore due to my path to enlightenment. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that's not as catastrophic when you start to actually put some numbers to it and say, oh, that that's not particularly scary. Yeah. Uh, now, that's if we suspend our skepticism. I'm just going to be honest. I have like a personal bias here with this type of thing. I just really dislike metrics that lack face validity. Like, cause I, I don't think you would actually walk up to somebody in the field of nutrition to say like, do you truly believe this statement? If you eat a hot dog, it reduces your lifespan by 36 minutes. I, I don't actually believe anyone would say, I actually believe that in a literal way. Mm -hmm. And so my, I, my, my perspective is 
you know, we're trying to, I assume, quantify these things to make them more tangible. But if we don't actually believe that tangible quantification, I, I just don't see why we really bother with, with these things. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's particularly helpful or useful, but that's my personal opinion. I'm sure a lot of really smart folks disagree with me on that. Um, but I looked into the paper, uh, the scoring system for how we arrive at this seemed a little bit opaque to me. So I dug a little deeper and found a dissertation document by one of the authors uh, of this paper. And within the dissertation document, if you've ever opened up a dissertation, they're long and they have like 70 tables in them. You know, it's like all this, like the paper that results from it is like the highlight reel. You yeah. know, the dissertation is like usually like 200 pages, 36 appendices. It's long. So there was all the details in there about how the scoring system works. A couple of things that jumped out to me. It, Can I just throw out a really hot take? Sure. So th this is adjacent to something we've talked about on the podcast before, how uh, there's just a, there's so many low impact publications that come out every year ju just due to like publisher parish type pressures. I actually kind of think that dissertations rock and that's how like most research should be done. You know, ju just pump out like one dissertation quality thing per year. Boom. Great. And like, obviously, that wouldn't make sense for an individual to do now. One, because journals wouldn't publish it, word count limits, etc. Uh, and two, because, you know, even if you have one high impact pub a year, generally, that's going to be looked uh, poorly upon if people you're competing against have 15 lower impact pubs. Uh, but I, I think in a perfect world, most most research documents would look a lot more like theses or dissertations just because like you're describing they're uh they're so much more thorough you know uh oftentimes when you're reading an individual paper you will have questions after you read the method section which should not be the case like the theoretical purpose of a method section is if someone wanted to perfectly replicate your study they could and like that's kind of rare, I think, yeah. uh, for for a method section to actually be that thorough. You almost always see that in dissertations. Um, and then often, like, there's a logical flow to them. Like, they might include two, three, four experiments that all build on each other. So you can kind of see how an idea develops and uh, multiple layers of evidence supporting whatever concept it is. So I, I think in a perfect world, that's how most science would be done and communicated. Um, anyway, you mentioned dissertations. I, I just wanted to slide that in there. Uh, you can keep going. All right, we'll do. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, basically, uh, I, I took a quick look at the scoring system. A couple things that jumped out to me were uh, it was pretty punitive for sodium. Um, and it was a little bit punitive for red meat as well. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of those things where when you start to look at how these quantifications work, they peel away a lot of the context of the specific food item and the overall construction of the diet. They try to boil it down to kind of basic contributing factors. And sometimes it's, it's not super helpful to do that, you know? So like if you have a high sodium food in the context of a diet that isn't particularly high in sodium or you know, you're an exerciser, you have a lot of sweat loss, or you're not particularly sodium sensitive when it comes to your blood pressure response to diet, like 
some of these things start to really break down in more nuanced applications. So anyway, you know, these types of scoring systems, I don't really know if I support the general premise. Uh, and even if you do, they, they tend to get pretty overly reductionist and, and you run into situations where some foods can have kind of, uh, unexpected results within the scoring system based on their various components. Um, uh, so, one of the other things that jumped out to me here is I, I'm not really fond of the concept of treating risks as these like perfectly linear things where you do it once and your lifespan shortens, you do it twice, your lifespan shortens more. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it, we're, we're talking about probability here. You know, you could do a something that is carcinogenic. And if you do that for your entire lifespan and never end up developing cancer as a result of that behavior, your lifespan did not shorten due to that thing, despite the fact that it is known to be carcinogenic. You know, I mean, you'd want to avoid that if possible, but I, I don't know if, if I like this approach. I mean, this is probably how like actuary tables work, right? Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean if, if you play Russian roulette six consecutive times with a single revolver, you will die but you don't become one sixth dead. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's something to keep in mind is like this, this whole approach to the scoring system and the, the way it's treated as this kind of perfectly linear thing in the headlines. I'm not super fond of now. This sounds super critical. I, I don't want to just like bash the paper because it is work that is done well. Um, you know, people like this stuff and this is a suitable way to do nutrition uh, kind of like, epidemiological nutrition science. So this is just me being uh, a little bit contrarian just because you see these headlines that people run away with and you're like, I understand the headline and where it comes from, but I don't believe that anyone actually believes that. So if you're curious about why you kept seeing those headlines, that's pretty much um, where this comes from. But this particular paper did not introduce new evidence you know, new empirical evidence about risks associated with actually consuming hot dogs. They basically said, hot dog, okay, we've got, uh, you know, uh, super refined bread, we've got high sodium, we've got processed meat, check, 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 36 minutes. So that's where this came from. And I don't put a whole lot of stock. I mean, hot dog is not a particularly healthful food. We knew that before the study, we know that after the 36 minute component is very arbitrary, in my opinion. Um, now, there was an interesting aspect of this paper that looked at the environmental impact of foods. And it did the same kind of approach where it tried to assign a score, you know, use some scoring systems to talk about how choosing a particular food might impact the environment. Now, I don't have the skill set to really assess that type of scoring system. I'm not an environmental scientist. But an important thing to note is that these authors are environmental scientists. Part of me, you know, if you look at the paper and say, you know what, the health and nutrition stuff, let's table that for a moment. And I just want to look at the environmental impact stuff. Um, I would have to assume that the environmental impact stuff is potentially a little bit more uh, rigorous and robust and applicable than the nutrition side, because this PhD was done in environmental health sciences. Um, so that was that part of the paper was probably more squarely within their wheelhouse rather than uh, specifically looking at like nutritional science or something like that. I'm just guessing, but um, it is it was an interesting paper to look at some of the environment related ramifications of choosing a variety of different foods. So if you're interested in that, it's it's a cool paper for that. Like I said, I don't have the skill set to really assess 
uh, those environmental scores, but that is a rundown of the papers that have been in the headlines. And now, Greg, I understand that you have a research roundup. Yeah, I, I've got a few. Um, how are we doing on time? I, I've got three, but I want to make sure we have time for Q&A. So if, if you um, think it would be best to just do two, I'm fine with that. Sure, do two. All right. So uh, I have also got one that is ripped from the headlines. Uh, so there was a press release put out recently uh, titled Mathematical Model Predicts Best Way to Build Muscle. Um, which, you know, that's, that's obviously a very audacious title, uh, that's, that's going to suck you right in. Um, and this, uh, press release and the paper underlying it, uh, generated enough interest that it actually batted for the cycle when it came to people reaching out to me on every platform that I can be reached on. Uh, people posted about this in our Facebook groups. They posted about it in the subreddit. They messaged it to me on Facebook, they emailed it to me, and they hit me up about it in my Instagram inbox. Uh, so, and, and I believe it was different people every time. So clear, clearly there's general interest in this uh, and a lot of people uh, who want my take. So I will oblige them. So anyway, um, like I said, the, the title of the press release is Mechanical Model or Mathematical Model Predicts Best Way to Build Muscle. Uh, the study underlying it is titled Why Exercise Builds Muscles, Titan Mechanosensing Control Skeletal Muscle Growth Under Load. Um, and a, a lot of the focus on this came from one key quote from the press release. Uh, the quote was, and this is from one of the authors, our model offers a physiological basis for the idea that muscle growth mainly occurs at 70% of maximum load, which is the idea behind resistance training, said... Terentigive. Below that, the opening rate of Titan kinase drops precipitously and precludes me uh, mechanosensitive signaling from taking place. Above that, rapid exhaustion prevents a good outcome, which our model has uh, quantitatively predicted. So anyway, I, I think the reason that this generated a lot of buzz is because you have these people doing like, to be clear, super nerd level research. Uh, seeming to validate what the bros have been saying for a long time. 70% 1RM, uh, that's around a 12 rep max load for most exercises. Uh, and it's, you know, something you'd probably be doing for sets of 10 if you're trying to hit failure in about three, four, five sets. Something you'd be doing for about sets of eight if you were training with a few reps left in reserve. So like 70% 1RM is like probably the single percentage most associated with like the eight to 12 rep range, which is the classical hypertrophy range. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a three rep max for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. <laughs> um, uh, do, do you, do you mind if I, uh, break subject confidentiality for, for my, no, go, study for real quick? go for it. Uh, yeah, so so this motherfucker right here had the worst bench press strength endurance of anyone in my thesis study. Uh, Trux was a subject the the total number of reps completed in a single set to failure at 75% one RM. Uh, it ranged from six to 15. And uh, you were the six. Yep. <laughs> Mr. Six. <laughs> the six God, as they say. <laughs> um. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think that's one of the reasons it generated so much interest. You have 
very, very technical research seeming to confirm what people have been saying, like, quote unquote, in the trenches for a long time. Uh, that that confluence of events seems very satisfying. And so uh, I, I think a lot of people were were interested in that. And I think a lot of people uh, <laughs> specifically wanted my take on it because I've been saying for for years now that, you know, really the the hypertrophy range probably isn't as narrow as folks have been saying. Um, on a per set basis, as long as you're getting pretty close to failure, anywhere from sets of 20, 25 reps on the light end of things to sets of uh, probably around five or six reps on the heavy end of things all seem to promote hypertrophy uh, pretty much equally well on a per set basis. Um, so anyway, I, since I've been saying that, I, I think people were, were interested in, in my take on this. And um, anyway, the paper did not at all find that uh, 70% of 1RM is the ideal load for hypertrophy. Uh, but before we can get into that, it's it's worth some background to talk about what the paper was actually interested in looking at. Uh, so just as background, uh, it's commonly believed, I wouldn't say even commonly believed, it's nearly universally believed uh, that one of the main precipitators of hypertrophy signaling is something called mechanotransduction. So mechanotransduction is basically the idea that uh, there are proteins uh, within or surrounding your muscle fibers that can sense an increase in force being created by or transmitted through the muscle. Uh, and then once that force is sensed, that kicks off a signaling cascade that eventually results in increases in muscle protein synthesis. So that's mechanotransduction. Uh, and, and that, like I said, that's almost universally believed to be either the main or one of the main uh, initiators of hypertrophy. There's some protein somewhere or multiple proteins, multiple places within your muscles that are accomplishing mechanotransduction. And that kicks off all of the things that eventually result in muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and there are several candidate proteins that might be the main, quote unquote, main uh, sensor for mechanotransduction. Um, and what the authors of this paper uh, basically wanted to put forth is that there is a possible candidate uh, for the main or or being one of the main mechanotransducers uh, that is maybe not discussed as often as it should be. Uh, so that's referred to as the kinase domain of Titan. There are other potential candidates for mechanotransduction, probably most notably focal adhesion kinase, uh, that kind of get a lot of press in the mechanistic, like hypertrophy signaling world. Uh, and these these authors are basically arguing that the kinase domain of Titan should be getting uh, a similar amount of attention because they think that might be one of the main mechanotransducers. Um, so what they did is they generated a pretty intricate model to essentially predict okay, what would acute and chronic responses to resistance training look like if we assume that this particular kinase is the most important site of mechanotransduction? So if we assume that this particular region on the Titan protein is your main mechanotransducer, what would that predict? Uh, and so they, they generated, uh, I have to give them props for this, the model they generated was ridiculous. Like they accounted for so many variables. Uh, 
like when, when they were modeling the effects of load on like how long this particular kinase would be open and active, they even modeled like uh, the impact, I believe, of uh, fiber size on ribosome density within the fiber and rates of ATP usage at different levels of uh, of contraction strength. Like there was there was a it, it, they weren't lazy with model construction. Like they accounted for just about every variable that they realistically could have. Um, but like it did still rest on a lot of assumptions. The main assumption being it's not proven that this particular Titan associated kinase is the main mechanotransducer. It was basically assuming grant us that it is, if it is, then, then what could we predict? Um, and so basically the predictions they generated from this model were uh, physiologically plausible and more or less in line with experimental outcomes. Uh, so basically the, the biggest thing they were putting forth in their research is like, hey, if we assume that this is the main mechanotransducer, we can generate predictions that look pretty much like the real world. Therefore, this might be the main mechanotransducer. Therefore, more research is warranted to see if that's the case. So, so that's that's basically what what they were doing. This was uh, more or less a very very elaborate hypothesis generating model um, to to put forth theoretical evidence to suggest that this particular Titan associated kinase deserves more actual experimental research to see if it is as important as these researchers think it might be like that. That was the main point of the paper. Um, so the big question, is this evidence that 70% of one RM is the optimal intensity for building muscle? No, it's not. Uh, again, the main problem the authors were addressing is that there's not enough research on this particular kinase in the first place. Uh, so this paper, I would say, is basically two steps away from uh, constituting evidence that we could use to inform training prescription. Uh, so this was basically to generate hypotheses for in vitro research or animal research. And then if they do that research and it pans out, then it'll be time for human research and, and probably three steps away from actual uh, implementation because then when you get to human research, then it's going to be mechanistic work, acute work, and then maybe longitudinal work to look at further implications of this. So we're, we're talking about um, a pretty long uh, research process, potentially leading from this paper to novel and useful insights about how to, to program training, but that, that's where things stand now. Um, it's, very, very intricate, very, very cool modeling work. Uh, but if you looked at the press release and you're counting it as definitive evidence that 70% 1RM is for sure the optimal intensity to train at, uh, we're years, potentially decades away from being able to uh, make any sort of statement like that grounded on this research as it stands today yeah the press releases were hilarious the headlines were like <laughs> trainers hate these scientists for exposing the real keys to muscle gain yeah and it's just not not what they were doing correct okay um 
let's see. One of the other things I was going to talk about is uh, a study that we recently posted about on Instagram. So I'm going to skip that one and just say, uh, follow Stronger by Science on Instagram. Uh, if you scroll back, probably, probably I would say six posts by the time that this episode is coming out. Uh, you'll see one with a scatter plot on it uh, that has to do with squatting and ankle mobility. Check out that post. Uh, I, I was basically just going to talk about the same the same stuff we posted. Uh, just double dip in a little bit. But anyway, I'll skip that one. Uh, so let's talk about caffeine. Caffeine's good stuff. If you're following along on video, I've got my coffee. Uh, I like caffeine. It's nice. And uh, caffeine is also for the ladies. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here. So there was a meta-analysis that came out a couple years, or not a couple years, a couple uh, months ago, titled Ergogenic Effects of Acute Caffeine Intake on Muscular Endurance and Muscular Strength in Women, a meta-analysis by Gergic and Del Coso. Um, and and this, this was, I would say, an important meta-analysis because, uh, you know, we've talked about how caffeine is a useful ergogenic for increasing force output and increasing strength endurance on the podcast several times. Um, and, and I think we have touched on uh, sex differences in caffeine metabolism. Um, but but there's there was some degree of trepidation uh, certainly within my brain and also within the research community about whether or not research on the ergogenic effects of caffeine generalized from males to females. Uh, there were a couple reasons for that. Uh, first off, uh, a couple of the early papers looking at the, the potential ergogenic effects of caffeine in women failed to find significant effects, whereas similarly designed studies did find significant effects in males. Uh, so there were some early suggestions that maybe caffeine was ergogenic in males, but not females. Uh, secondly, it's known that uh, estrogen affects caffeine metabolism. Um, specifically, it affects the functioning of the CYP1A2 gene, which is, uh, or the CYP1A2 enzyme, which is the rate limiting enzyme in caffeine metabolism. Um, it carries the load for like 95% of caffeine metabolism. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, uh, and there are also some suggestions that say CYP1A2 gene variants might affect, uh, caffeine metab. Well, they certainly affect caffeine metabolism and potentially therefore the ergogenic effects of caffeine, although that's not quite as clear. So, you know, maybe if, if there's a hormone that's affecting caffeine metabolism, that could affect the ergogenic effects. Uh, differently in males versus females. Uh, and also some degree of trepidation just related to the fact that there was <laughs> there was very little research uh, looking at the potential ergogenic effects of caffeine in women. So just to illustrate, uh, there was a 2020 uh, meta-analysis looking at the impact of caffeine on strength and strength endurance. Uh, this was not a meta-analysis that specifically... Uh, restricted. I, I was checking it real quick to see if you were an author on it. You were not. W when was uh, when was the meta on caffeine that you were a co-author on? Was that like uh, 2018, 2019? Something like that. The years all blend together. Yeah, whatever. Um, so, so yeah, the the most recent 
meta-analysis looking at the general ergogenic effects of caffeine on resistance training, acute outcomes, uh, was was, uh, published in 2020. Um, It didn't restrict the subjects to only males, but 19 studies were included. And of the 19 studies, 15 used exclusively male subjects. Two used mixed-sex cohorts that were still very strongly slanted towards male subjects. So uh, one had 11 total subjects, including nine males and two females. One had 17 total subjects with 13 males and four females. Uh, And of the 19 studies, only two used exclusively female subjects. Um, So, you know, we're, we're talking about theoretically uh, a a meta-analysis on the effects of caffeine independent of sex, but functionally it was a meta-analysis on the impact of caffeine in males Uh, because males accounted for 87% of the subjects in the studies included in that meta. Um, So even relative to exercise science generally, the caffeine research was very, very slanted towards having male subjects. Uh, There's a 2014 paper that, that people bring up a lot uh, showing that in exercise and sports science research, about 60% of the subjects are male, about 40% female. Um, so when, when you're looking at 87% male subjects in a particular body of research, you're you're really dealing with a body of research where, um, you know, the, the potential impact of what, whatever you're studying on women and females is... Uh, is very underrepresented in, in the body of literature as it stands. So anyway, that was the state of, of the research in 2020. Um, but since then, there's been a uh, explosion of sorts in caffeine research in women. So in, in the meta-analysis I'm going to be talking about here very briefly, uh, there were eight studies included looking at the impacts of uh, caffeine versus placebo on uh, 1RM strength and measures of strength endurance Uh, And of the eight studies included, five of them were published in either 2020 or 2021. Um, So a majority of (laughs) the research looking at the effects of caffeine on resistance training outcomes in women has been published in the last year. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, yeah, they performed a a competent meta-analysis looking at the effects on 1RM strength and strength endurance and found that caffeine has a small positive effect on 1RM strength and strength endurance uh, in women. And the effect size estimates uh, from this meta-analysis were virtually identical to the effect size estimates uh, observed in the uh, prior meta-analysis I mentioned that came out in 2020 and basically included all male subjects. Uh, So currently at, at this point, it seems that caffeine is also ergogenic in women and is similarly, the ergogenic effects are uh, pretty similar uh, regardless of sex. So uh, that's where, that's where the research stands currently. And uh, I I gotta, I gotta, I got, can't talk. I gotta be honest. It it was nice uh, seeing how many more studies in the area have been published in the last year um, for, for us to be able to, uh, see a meta-analysis on it and uh, be able to make that comparison. Yeah, it, it's cool because, uh, you know, I see Del Coso uh, in the outline here. I, it was a few years back, I, I think his group published a paper and, and 
the entire purpose of the paper was to bring awareness to the fact that it was like, hey, there was a huge absence of mm -hmm. caffeine research in women. Uh, and so it looks like people saw that paper and said, yep, we got it, took that directive. And now we're starting to see some of that research finding its way into journals. And you got to understand that there's going to be a lag time there, usually of at least one to two years, but often longer when, when it, you know, from the time a research idea is formed and then the study gets planned, ethics, approval, recruitment, data collection, writing, rejection, Fi rejection, rejection. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it, it can be several years. So I, I think we're starting to see, uh, you know, some of the uh, fruits of that labor when it comes to bringing awareness to. Uh, why is that funny? Well, no, I, I was just thinking of, of other times that's happened. Um, pro probably the big the biggest example I can think of is. Uh, and this kind of circles back to the first uh, paper I talked about, the modeling paper from from the research roundup. Uh, the uh, low load versus moderate load hypertrophy research. Uh, there was that paper by by Mitchell, I think in 2013, 2014, which was just looking at unilateral knee extensions, 80% versus 30%, finding pretty similar hypertrophy, which at the time was, was a pretty novel finding and then, uh, like you said, it takes about two years to get new studies out. You could have set a clock from the time that Mitchell paper was published. Two years later, there was a deluge of like a dozen studies coming out over the span of about 18 months, largely confirming those findings. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there was a very influential paper about a year, two years of lag time. And then, boom, everybody, uh, everybody starts getting in on it. Uh, yeah, which which is exactly how it should work. You correct, know, yeah. um, a lot of times you'll see people who have an idea that they're very fond of and they'll say, but there is evidence for this. And they'll show you one paper with like 24 participants. And you're mm -hmm. like, let's wait until that next wave of eight or 10 other papers comes out and see if we can, you know, figure out the pattern there. Yeah, you know, yeah. so uh, it, it's good to see for sure. I get nervous anytime I say something, especially if it's a saying or a phrase and you start laughing because like, I I don't read and I don't <laughs> consume really any type of content. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how people speak these days. I, I feel like I'm always like walking into some kind of linguistic trap whenever that happens. But I'm glad to see that uh, you were just thinking of something else. Um, no, whenever... Uh, I think my knee-jerk response to just about anything that happens in my brain is to giggle. Yeah, that's so, good. It's fine. All right. Uh, moving on, I've got a very, very brief Coach's Corner segment. In a previous Coach's Corner segment, I talked about uh, three different ways to try to estimate your total daily energy expenditure, um, which is always a great place to start if you're thinking about uh, putting together a diet, whether it's going to be a weight loss diet, a maintenance diet, a weight gain diet. You want to start by getting a calorie target. And figuring out your total daily energy expenditure is going to be very, very informative for that. So I talked about three different approaches that you could take. You could assume, you could estimate, or you could observe. And you could go back to that episode. I think it was the most recent episode where I walked through those, those three different approaches. But now I want to kind of extend those three different approaches and talk about how we would use those to actually set a calorie target rather than just simply estimating total daily energy expenditure. So if you want to do the assume approach, this is where we're making a very uh, 
very basic assumption. It's not particularly detailed or nuanced. Uh, for some people, it simply won't work well. Uh, but you could make an assumption based on calories uh, relative to body weight. So uh, you could think of it as being, you know, 15 calories per pound of body weight in many cases is going to put you around maintenance. And you can think of that as 15 plus or minus one. So like 14 to 16 for a lot of people. Um, and 15 calories per pound is equivalent to 33 kilocalories uh, per kilogram. Okay. And I, when I say calories here, I'm talking about kilocalories, uh, just to be clear. So 15 calories per pound or 33 calories per kilogram will put you right around maintenance plus or minus, uh, you know, that, that range I mentioned. If you wanted to push a cut pretty hard, you might go down all the way to about 11 calories per pound. Uh, or 24.2 calories per kilogram. Physique athletes who you know are, are kind of lower on the energy expenditure spectrum, sometimes they'll go down as low as 10 or even 9 calories per pound for brief periods of time at the end of their prep. It's brutal. It's very low calorie intakes. But uh, I know some people are going to look at these numbers in bulk and say, no, I need way fewer calories if I'm cutting. So for an, an aggressive cut, in my opinion, is usually around 11, but you will sometimes see instances where to get really, really lean late in the diet, you do have to go below 11. Uh, for a bulk, you know, moderate bulk might be up around 17 calories per pound. An aggressive bulk uh, would be a little bit higher, up around 19 calories per pound. Again, these are all plus or minus one, give or take. Uh, this is a really rough estimate that we're getting here. I, I we, we posted about this today on Instagram and people already were saying, those estimates don't really work for me. Uh, and that is not just understandable, it's to be expected. You know, Rough estimates are going to have areas where they simply don't work well for a given individual. That's why in Macro Factor, we don't use this concept at all. This is just kind of the easiest, most straightforward, basic way to do it. Uh, a more nuanced approach, which is particularly useful if you have no data about an individual's energy expenditure or energy intake and body weight changes over time. If you're just starting with a blank slate, we could use the estimate approach where we would use you know, some type of equation and some type of activity correction factor to estimate total daily energy expenditure. And then we would just set the calorie target based as a percentage of total daily energy expenditure. So, um, you know, we, we talked about the Harris Benedict uh, equation is pretty good for, for uh, people who don't do resistance training. I think the Cunningham equation is great for people who do lift weights and do resistance training. Um, but you want to use one of the very common uh, estimation equations. And then you want to use the activity correction factors. I think ours are better than the standard because the standard ones kind of don't make sense. And I'm not saying ours are perfect either. I mean, like, you know, it's hard to try to do an activity correction factor. I mean, one of the things that makes it difficult to make them perfect is the fact that uh, exercise doesn't affect <laughs> total daily energy. Yeah, we, we should have put that, put out a table <laughs> and every cell on the table just says zero. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, you're going to get your total daily energy expenditure estimate. If you want to do an aggressive cut, you might be eating like 60 to 70% of estimated total daily energy expenditure. Moderate cut will probably be about 80 to 90%. So you'll be in a 10, 20% deficit. Maintenance obviously is just 100%. Moderate bulk would be up around 105 to 110%. And then an aggressive bulk, you'd be eating 115 to 120% of your estimated total daily energy expenditure. Some people might think, uh, you know, oh, I could push harder than that. If I'm bulk, I could go higher. And that's ultimately going to depend on what kind of a hurry you're in, 
um, you know, how much adipose tissue you're comfortable gaining during that muscle gaining phase and also what your potential for muscle gain is, you know, people who have really great muscle building genetics who are early in their lifting career, they probably can get away with pushing some pretty serious caloric surpluses because they've got a whole bunch of capacity to add muscle quickly and adding muscle quickly is a process that requires a lot of energy. Uh, now the third approach is observe. And, you know, when we talked about total daily energy expenditure, we talked about observing your energy intake changes in body weight, using that to make inferences about, uh, changes in total daily energy expenditure and the total, uh, energy content of one's body, you know, based on changes in, in body composition. So with the observe approach, it's the same kind of deal. We want to be watching changes in body weight over time and using that to guide whether or not we need to change our calorie target. So, um, you know, if, if you are using this observe approach, what you're doing is tracking your calorie target, tracking changes in body weight and composition, and then basically titrating your calorie intake from there, aiming for a particular rate of weight change, whether it's weight loss or weight gain. So if you're on a pretty aggressive cut, you might be losing body weight at over 1% of body weight per week. Uh, you know, one, one and a half. Usually that's about where you're going to find things. If you're going, if you start getting over too far over one and a half percent of body weight per week, it starts to get pretty aggressive. It's, it's not a particularly enjoyable process there. Uh, moderate cut is usually 0.25 to 1% of body weight lost per week. Maintenance, obviously, is just keeping body weight pretty stable. A moderate bulk, you might be looking to gain 0.1 to 0.25% of body weight per week. And with an aggressive bulk, you might be gaining over 0.25% of body weight per week. Uh, so there are kind of the three different approaches, uh, extending those from estimating total daily energy expenditure, taking it a step further, and seeing how those would ultimately lead to uh, you know, recommendations in terms of a calorie target for a variety of different goals. Uh, and, you know, whether you choose between a moderate or a more aggressive cut, a moderate or a more aggressive bulk, a lot of contextual factors that go into that. These uh, general guidelines don't necessarily work perfectly for everyone, especially the first couple approaches uh, have some limitations where there are people who just are on the higher or lower end of the spectrum for total daily energy expenditure. There are people for whom uh, some of those estimation equations don't work perfectly well, especially like catch or the, uh, the Harris Benedict and Cunningham ones, I think are kind of the cream of the crop, but there are some ones that are commonly used that for certain, uh, for certain, uh, populations, they just don't work particularly well. So these are to try to get within the ballpark, but the observe approach where you're actually making changes based on changes in body weight over time it is a really tried and true method uh, to make sure that you're keeping on track. And so obviously with macro factor, when we have, you know, changes in body weight, we've got all your daily caloric intakes, we're able to update those calorie targets on the fly. And that, that's really the basis of how we do it. All right. So moving on, we've got a Q and a section. Do you want to kick us off here with your first question? Yeah, let's do it. This, this will be a quick one. So, uh, Hayato Nishiyama asks in the Facebook group, uh, he, he said he's interested in my take on the press out rule in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, so to, to answer or to, to give my take somewhat more broadly, I don't like rules that, make any sort of strength uh, competition type thing 
about more than just moving the weight from A to B. And I also don't like judgment calls from refs. Uh, so I think in general, I like strongman rules for things like, oh, hey, th that bar is on the ground, needs to wind up over your head. Uh, figure it out for yourself. And as, <laughs> as long as it gets up there, it's good. Um, I like I like that personally. Uh, to me, strength sports are just about moving weights from A to B. I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. And I also don't like judgment calls. So uh, press outs are something where it's, it notoriously comes down to judgment calls where, you know, one judge, like a little wobble of the elbow is fine. Another judge will, uh, will give you red lights for that. And so like, yeah, I, I'm not crazy about the press out rule. I, I don't think removing it would really change the sport all that much. Uh, newsflash, like you can jerk more than you can shoulder press. And so, you know, it's not like, oh, hey, people don't have to, to get to full elbow extension immediately. Like now they can lift 25 more kilos than they used to before. Like, yeah, it, so I'm using, uh, I'm just trying to make some inferences here. The press, the press out rule, I guess. If oh they, if, yeah. Yeah. That's if they determine in Olympic weightlifting that you are pressing the weight to get to a lockout position. Yeah. That, that, that's worth, that's that, worth explaining. So, yeah. um, for, for both the snatch and the clean and jerk, basically you, you need to have one, one immediate motion for the bar to get to a locked out position. So for the jerk, if you're like, if you catch the bar here, like two inches from lockout and then press it the last two inches, that's a press out doesn't count. Uh, but where the judgment call comes in is like, sometimes you jerk it, uh, and like your elbows are locked, but then maybe you got under it a little too far and the weight crashes on you a little bit. You barely unlock your elbows and you press it back out. Some judges will count that, some won't. And yeah, I, I don't like that. And I and that extends to other sports. So like one of the dumbest rules I think in powerlifting is that uh, like a squat or a bench doesn't count if there's any downward motion during I the lift. I hate that. I hate that. Dude, you're just making it harder. You know, like yeah. you're, you're not making it. It's not like someone can cheat and be like, ah, yes, I found... <laughs> the ideal way to squat. If I give myself a little dip midway up, <laughs> I, it makes it easier to stand up. Now, that's stupid. Like yeah. if, uh, if, so, if someone goes all the way down and stands all the way up, they squatted the weight, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, the only one where I think it really makes much of a difference. And, and so to be clear, I especially think that this take holds, when you're dealing with things that don't really affect performance all that much. Um, so like I said, the press out rule, I think if you got rid of it, you're not going to see people jerking 30 more kilos than they were previously. Like it, it's something that's just going to matter on the margins. If you allow people to have a slight downward motion of the barbell when they squat or bench, that's not going to help anyone. It just helps like it'll allow people to get white lights when they would have gotten reds, but like it's not going to, raise the ceiling of the sport by 50 kilos or whatever. The The only one where uh, I think it's not quite as straightforward is hitching and ramping on the deadlift because that legitimately could help someone lift quite a bit more. Um, maybe comes with some degree of increased risk. I personally still like, <laughs> still like hitching and ramping. I think it's fine. Um, 
because again, like it removes a judgment call. Like there, yeah. there are some ramping calls that are that are judgment calls. Uh, hitching, not so much. But I don't know. I, to to go back to what I said previously, if the bar starts where it's supposed to and ends up where it's a, where it's supposed to, I think it should count as a lift. Um, so that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, man. So we we've influenced a lot of legislation through the podcast before. And if there's one thing that I could influence currently, uh, speaking of judgment calls, the, the in college football, getting thrown out of the game for targeting <laughs> that is completely incidental in nature. Yeah. It it's hard to watch, man. Like, dude, I, I get like you want to keep the players safe. Of course you do, but like throwing someone out of a game for an unintentional action cannot really be an effective deterrent like yeah. it was an involuntary thing that occurred yeah uh that rule is terrible i know no one in our audience really cares to hear this discussion but dude they got to do something like like in basketball where it's like okay you got two technicals that's over the line you know we'll give you one warning in a game or but like or flagrant one flagrant two yeah or you know find a way to be like okay did that look like there was really malicious intent or is that just the way football works you know yeah. but man this weekend it was hard to watch some of those calls because you're like no one no one in this stadium thinks that was done intentionally with any you know intention to do harm yeah you know yeah. terrible anyway moving on here i've got a question from lucia lopez vasquez and the question is, is organic food worth the price? Uh, and man, this takes me back to a story. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely annoyed about how I learned about the Dirty Dozen, uh, which is a list uh, created by a group called the Environmental Working Group. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically like these 12 foods are, you know, they're riddled with pesticides. Don't touch them. You know, they're very, very bad news. Uh as you can tell, I'm not reading off the website. That's just kind of my vague recollection of what the dirty dozen represents. Um, so my introduction to this concept was actually in a college course that I was taking uh, at, at the doctoral level. So I was taking a PhD level course uh, at a, a pretty decent university. Uh, you know, my, my professor had like, uh, in a, you know, a, another appointment, I believe at Harvard. And like, you know, it's always like, oh, hey, this is, this should be pretty rigorous stuff I'm getting here. And as I was taught as a doctoral level student, it was like, yeah, the dirty dozen, very good list. This is how science works. Uh, don't touch any of these foods. It's very bad. And I'm like, you know, as a doc student, your coursework, you're like running like seven studies and you have to like sneak out of the lab to go take a class. And it's really just a break from doing your research, you know, like, I mean, so you're not going to be in a class and say, you know what, after class, I'm going to spend three hours fact checking everything I just heard in that lecture. Yeah, yeah. Like, unless it's something that's critically important to you and has some kind of translation to your research line, you're probably going to say, okay, that's fine. You know, if you put that on the exam, I'll give it back to you, you know? So I was taught that this is very robust science. And then Eventually, over the years, you know, I had a little bit more free time. I kept hearing it come up again and again. Uh, you know, you can find several uh, articles on the internet about, you know, asking experts how they feel about this dirty dozen. Uh, there are peer-reviewed studies looking at, uh, you know, some of the dirty dozen stuff. And 
I don't know if I've ever seen an expert in this area who takes that list particularly seriously. And the reason I bring up this dirty dozen list is because when people start making the argument like, hey, you really ought to be buying organic produce, the first thing they send you is this dirty dozen list of like these 12 foods, which happen to be extremely common, uh, you know, types of produce. They're like, dude, you cannot be getting these conventionally for these 12 at minimum. You got to be going organic. Uh, and so there's a paper by Winter and Katz uh, where they kind of looked at the methodology associated with putting this list together and the actual contents of the list back in like 2011. And of course, it gets updated like every year. But like the three main points in this paper were, uh, you know, the exposures that they're talking about here uh, have negligible risk to consumers. So you could look at a list and say, these are the 12 most, you know, you know, highest density of whatever contaminant you want to put on the list. But they're like, fine, but we're talking about 12 that still fall well within safe ranges. So you're you're making this list, but it's of no consequence when it comes to the actual exposure level. It, it would be like if someone put out a list that, that's like the 12 menu items at McDonald's most likely to kill you immediately after eating them. Right. Like maybe you could quantify that, but like you're probably not going to die immediately after eating any of them. Right. So, so the first part was like, dude, even if Except we... Except for the... Uh, what what do they call it? The fish one? Fish fillet? Oh, it's vile. Yeah, it is pretty gross. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh McGriddles though are pretty Dude, McGriddles, pretty good. McGriddles are elite. Yeah. Yeah. That that is uh honestly all of McDonald's breakfast. Yeah. Hard to go wrong. And lunch and dinner for the most part. Honestly, that's true. Yeah. J just get rid of the fish one and and we'll be good. Yeah. Uh so the first point was like, listen, the exposure of these top 12 is, is not inherently deleterious or troublesome. Uh, the second point they made was that if you took these 12 and substituted organic ones in, uh, you are not going to have an appreciable reduction of risk. Uh, extension of point number one, like, okay, even if you reduce these values, we're still going to end up within a very uh, acceptable range in terms of exposure. Uh, and then the third point they brought up was that th they felt that the methodology used by this group to rank these top 12 uh, lacked scientific credibility. Um, it was a, a little bit arbitrary in terms of how the list was put together. So um, when it comes to, you know, a lot of times I'll have people ask me, should I you know, do I really need to be paying extra for organic produce uh, from a health perspective? And ultimately, your health decisions are up to you. But I have not seen any convincing evidence um, that it's a critically necessary step to take. I personally uh, consume all conventional produce. I, I have literally no concern about doing so. And I have looked into some of the research in this area. Stuff I don't know much about, uh, sometimes with the conventional versus organic uh, produce arguments, you will see people talk about ethical considerations, environmental considerations. I'm going to be honest, I really don't know much about those sides of the conversation. But from a pure health perspective, I haven't seen any convincing evidence to indicate that everyone needs to broadly switch over to organic produce. And I think in some cases, the messaging uh, is counterproductive and harmful because a lot of people who have really tight budgets uh, for their food purchases are being told like, hey, all those vegetables that you can easily afford, forget all that. 
just get a few of these vegetables that you actually can't, you, you know, you're going to have to basically reduce your vegetable intake in order to step up and spend the same amount of money on produce. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, for, for people who are looking for vegetables for health related, uh, you know, nutritional support on a budget, I think in many cases, like what I do personally, I go for uh, conventional produce and I go frozen uh, a lot of times rather than fresh uh, because people think about frozen and you think about the fast food commercials where everybody brags like, ah, oh, we never freeze our stuff. Um, but frozen produce actually holds a lot of the micronutrient content pretty effectively. So uh, that that's how I go about making my produce purchases. Makes sense to me. Personally, I buy uh, three things organic and it is uh, purely a flavor thing. Uh, I, I shop at Wegmans and the Wegmans that I shop at, the organic shiitake mushrooms, for whatever reason, just generally have a lot better texture than the conventional ones. Although I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, like I, I understand what organic versus conventional production looks like for, for plants. Fungi, I don't even know what that means. Uh, but anyway, their organic shiitake mushrooms tend to be better than the conventional uh, same thing applies to the ginger. I don't know why their conventional ginger tends to be like somewhat flavorless and like a little bit too stringy. They're organic, very nice, uh, and uh, green onions as well. But uh, yeah, it, it's purely just because uh, I was not a huge fan of the texture or flavor of the conventional ones. I said, eh, I'll give the organic a shot. And then I liked it and I said, God damn it. Because I, I feel the same way. Uh, I ideologically want to use <laughs> conventional produce for everything. Uh, so discovering a few organic products that uh, to me seemed like truly superior alternatives just from a culinary perspective, uh, it, it annoys me every time I buy them, but I still do. Yeah, it, it was funny. I was on a farm a few years ago uh, talking to the farmers and they're like, man, it's so expensive to certify your products organic and jump through all the hoops. And they're like, most of the stuff we farm out here is organic, but we only fi file the paperwork for one of the, the commodities that we farm. And I was like, oh, which one? They said the, the tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a kick out of that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right, you're up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Rackham Carlson asks in the Facebook group, uh, given the recent news about age and metabolism, maybe a quick overview of what we know about aging and physical performance, what kinds of performance can be expected to drop, and uh, how much and at, at what ages. Um, so yeah, th this was a reference to the last episode we put out. Um, so uh, Eric mentioned that he, dis that he discussed other Ponser papers previously when he discussed the one in this episode. One of those related to metabolism and aging. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, go back and listen to the prior episode where, uh, where Eric talked about that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Rackham is asking about performance. So different types of performance. How quickly do they drop off uh, and kind of how long can you really be expected to hold on and be able to maintain performance? And largely, uh, power-based and velocity-based performance drops off the quickest, uh, followed by strength performance, followed by uh, endurance performance, cardiovascular endurance. Uh, power and velocity-based stuff, 
generally starts dropping off in your 20s or maybe your 30s if you're really, really training for it. Um, you don't see many uh, elite level sprinters having a lot of success past their their early to mid 30s. Uh, and the ones that do, this this doesn't count as a legally actionable allegation, but many of the ones that, that do succeed a little bit later into their career uh, maybe have previously been busted for doping in the past or are connected to coaches uh, who have had a lot of athletes bo- uh, busted for doping. So do with that information what you will. Uh, for for top-level power velocity-based stuff, generally that starts dropping around your 30th birthday. And, you know, by training, you can you can maintain it as well as could be hoped for. Uh, but that it's, it's going down. Um, as far as strength goes, generally, uh, you can, you can maintain all or the vast, vast majority of your strength through your forties and still maintain it reasonably well, uh, through, through your fifties into your early sixties. Generally for, for most people, even if you keep training hard, uh, the rate of decrease is generally going to pick up a little bit by your mid sixties, certainly into your seventies. Uh, and that uh, that pattern holds true as well for endurance performance. Uh, I, I'd say you can you can be very very close to your peak, probably a little bit longer for endurance performance than for strength. Um, but it, it's a similar story. Uh, you know, probably starts dropping off in your 40s, picks up a little bit in the 50s, uh, but doesn't doesn't really start turning down until. Uh, mid 60s into your 70s. So um, yeah, overall, for most of your healthy lifespan, you you can maintain uh, strength and endurance, strength and endurance pretty well. But uh, power and and peak velocity uh, drop off pretty quickly quite a bit earlier. So uh, that's what I would say. Cool. Why don't you jump to your next one? I know that you had a, a profound emotional attachment to getting all your Q&A questions in. Um, so, you know, looking at the clock, I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to do that. Uh, sure. Th- those those were honestly the two that I wanted to answer the most, but uh, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, I, I've got I've got two more that are um, also going to be pretty short answers from Reddit. One is from Hey Hoyo four three two one, who asks, uh, "What do you think about bulking, or how do you think bulking and cutting phases can impact long term health and longevity? Will the cutting phases mitigate the potential negative health effects of the bulking phases? Is there any evidence that bulking and cutting affects lifespan? Uh, do you think bulking could increase accumulation of atherosclerosis earlier in life? I know you're not medical doctors." That is very true. Why do people always point that out? It's so disrespectful when they point that you out. You have a doctorate from the School of Medicine. That's true. So you're basically a medical doctor. I'm not, though, uh, for everyone listening. Uh, opinions differ. Uh, I know you're not medical doctors, but it would be interesting to hear your opinions. And uh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So basically, <laughs> that that was too dismissive. And, and what would you answer if a client asked you these questions? Yeah. That's how it actually finished. Uh, so yeah, I, again, to be clear, don't, uh, don't take this as medical advice at all. Um, it is, 
a, a relatively consistent finding that yo-yo dieting isn't a particularly great thing for both long-term health outcomes and just long-term weight and body composition outcomes. Um, but I suspect that a lot of the negative effects seen with yo-yo dieting have less to do with weight loss and weight gain in particular and more with the types of diets people are using to lose weight and then also the rate at which they're regaining weight. So, um, you know, obviously crash dieting isn't great. And on the the topic of weight regain, um, unless you're, unless you're very, very, uh, underweight or, you know, if you're a bodybuilder and you're like 4% body fat and gaining weight after a show, uh, those are, those are pretty much the only times that maybe a relatively quick weight or rate of, uh, weight gain or regain, uh, is probably neutral to beneficial for general health. Most of the time, uh, gaining weight, especially very quickly, not particularly a good thing, but I, I kind of suspect that, um, if, if your weight trajectory is also going up and down, but you're not dealing with, you know, rapid decreases, rapid increases, if it is more like, oh, hey, like I'm, I'm doing a bulking phase and I'm going to put on 15 pounds over the next 18 months or something like that, like a very, very uh, modest rate of weight gain and also not just crash dieting at the end of it. I, I suspect that that, um, th that that mitigates a lot of the negative effects that are often associated with yo-yo dieting. So I suspect that there really wouldn't be any or many uh, long-term deleterious effects. Uh, but that's also, <laughs> that's an area where there's no research. Um, you know, there's a decent bit of research on, on yo-yo dieting. Uh, but you know, there, there aren't that many people relative to the world population who go on purposeful, uh, multi-month, multi-year gradual bulks, gradual cuts, uh, certainly not enough for, you know, researchers to gather a thousand of them to see what, what the health implications are over 20 years. Um, so yeah, I, I can't pretend like that's a research backed answer, but that's, um, that's what I suspect to be the case. Like as long as you're taking things pretty gradually, uh, I think it's probably fine. But again, that is, that is not medical advice. Yeah. I'm excited about your next one because this relates to, uh, a mass article that I wrote recently in the most recent issue, actually. Do you want to take it? Uh, no, you go ahead. All right. Uh, so drain sink asks, uh, in the stronger by science subreddit, how does eating before bed affect sleep quality and time to fall asleep? Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and there were follow-up responses to this of people saying like, Hey, I, I'm on a diet or I'm working with a nutrition coach who's telling me to eat uh, a large protein bolus late at night. Um, but then I also do sleep tracking and sleep tracking says like, Oh no, that you don't like that. Uh, you're taking longer to fall asleep, not sleeping as well. So uh, what do you do? And, and so basically, I think it's important to note that you can't you can't necessarily interpret eating here as a binary variable. Like 
either you're eating or you're not, and all eating is the same. Um, so there's a uh, th there was a recent review paper, I think from from 2016. Uh, the title is Effects of Diet on Sleep Quality, and uh, St. Ong is the uh, lead author there. Uh, so we'll, we'll link that in the show notes, but the uh, the very, very quick and dirty <laughs> version of the takeaways from that uh, review paper is that there's some evidence to suggest that uh, a, a decent bolus of carbohydrate before bed might improve some sleep outcomes, maybe reduce sleep onset latency, uh, maybe increase proportion of REM sleep. Uh, and the opposite is true for a relatively high fat intake immediately before bed that could increase sleep onset latency and maybe decrease proportion of REM sleep a little bit. Um, and then uh, another thing worth noting. So one an idea that I've seen, seen bandied about that I got to be honest, uh, I assume there's research out there on it, but I personally haven't looked that far for it or that hard for it. But but I do know mechanistically, one of the things people point out is that uh, branched chain amino acids compete with tryptophan for uh, the same the same receptor for like uptake into the brain to, to cross the blood brain barrier. Uh, tryptophan is a uh, main component of some of the neurotransmitters that you're trying to produce as you're kind of calming down, falling, falling asleep. Uh, and so there's, there's some degree of suggestion that, uh, you know, I, I'm not talking about BCAA supplements in particular, but having a large protein bolus that has a large proportion of branch chain amino acids. So like basically any, any animal protein, um, may not be a particularly good idea because you could see some competitive inhibition with tryptophan. Um, but again, I, I haven't looked too hard to see if that does actually pan out in practice. Maybe you have more insight on that. Um, but yeah, so decent bit of carbs, probably fine. A lot of fat, not great. Ton of protein, potentially not great, although that's a bit more of a gray area. Um, and yeah, it just in general as well, there's some evidence to suggest, and, and I wouldn't necessarily stake my career and reputation on this. I wouldn't stake my career and reputation on any sort of uh, nutrition-related subject. That's that's your department. Um, but uh, there's some research suggesting that just for a, a host of outcomes, um, consuming a slightly larger proportion of your calories a little bit earlier in the day and a slightly smaller proportion of them later in the day and especially late at night uh, can improve multiple outcomes. For for a deeper dive on that, uh, Danny Lennon wrote an article for the site on chrononutrition that we can uh, that we can link in the show notes. But yeah, in, in general, um, may not be a terrible idea just to try to eat more of your calories earlier in the day so you're not having to consume a large bolus of food late at night. Uh, but if you do need to consume, or, or if you just prefer to consume something before bed, uh, it might not be a terrible idea to kind of save some carbs for late at night and to eat that before bed rather than a ton of fat or a ton of protein. But uh, yeah, that's that's about all I got. Yeah. Um... There, there's also some interesting evidence related to uh, hunger and fullness in proximity to when you go to bed. Uh, pretty strong evidence that going to bed hungry 
can lead to uh, some slightly impaired sleep, uh, but also some evidence that if you have a huge meal right before bed, especially a high fat meal, uh, that could potentially impair sleep. I do wonder when people report uh, the high protein intake uh, as being disruptive, I wonder how much of that is related to the branch chain amino acid side of things and how much could potentially be, be related to just you are doing a whole bunch of digestion at the time that you're laying down to sleep. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, if it's just too much food that takes too long to digest in too close proximity to bedtime, uh, because, you know, like you said, tryptophan critically important. It's a precursor to serotonin and melatonin, which are both heavily tied into the, the onset of sleep. Um, but in a recent paper I covered in mass, they found that, you know, when, when uh, individuals supplemented their dinner at night with a pretty big dose of whey protein, uh, the ratio of tryptophan to branched chain amino acids was not affected in an unfavorable way. Um, and so there, there should not have been an issue with that uh, tryptophan transport through that shared transporter. Uh, and also the thing that really matters is, you know, sleep quality did not deteriorate within that context. But it wasn't whey protein a moment before going to bed, nor was it, you know, a mixed meal a moment before going to bed. They had uh, some time there to kind of get the digestion process started. So um, sometimes people do ask like, hey, should I be worried about whey protein in the evening based on the evidence available, which is actually surprisingly quite direct with that new study. It's only one study that I'm aware of, but I, I don't see reason to induce too much panic about uh, whey protein before bed. But I would say, hey, if you're going to have a huge filling mixed meal with a bunch of protein, 10, 20, 30 minutes before you lie down for bed, that's probably not going to be conducive to a good night of sleep, in my opinion. Did, did, uh, did they look at sleep quality in any of those uh, pre-sleep casein studies? Not to my knowledge. There have been like four or five of those at this point. There have. I know uh, Dr. Ormsby down at Florida State uh, did quite a few studies in that area with pre-bed pre uh, protein. Uh, I cannot recall off the top of my head any that looked at sleep quality. I think a lot of them looked at uh, looking at substrate metabolism, especially the, the morning after, mm -hmm. um, you know, looked at all sorts of stuff, but I, I can't recall any that looked at it, It's very possible that they did. And at the time I read it, I just simply didn't care. Uh, yeah, that, you know? <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. I've, I, this like, only recently has kind of popped onto my, my radar. You know? Yeah. Like, like I said, I I've seen like four or five of those studies at this point. I read two of them and I definitely wasn't reading for, for sleep related. Yeah. Outcomes. Yeah. We should revisit those and report back if we find something interesting. Cool. All right, so uh, Greg, to play us out, uh, I see that we've got. Uh, do, you, do you not want to take any of these other questions? Uh, we're pushing the time limit here. Oh, all right. So I, I'm going to get to them, but I am going to save them. Okay, that works. I'm interested to see if you think this recipe here to play us out can compete with the classic fig Newton, because that's the first thing that came to mind when I saw this. Dude, we've got a bunch in the fridge downstairs. You should you should grab one on the way out. Well, let's uh, let's tell the good people what we're talking about here. Yeah, so I um, this is this is food content as the to play us out segment uh, has largely turned into, uh, and a, a couple times in the last few months, I've made some 
some uh, little streusel fruit bars that uh, are absolutely delicious. And I'm going to strongly recommend you make them, uh, especially if you have a lot of uh, room for carbohydrate in your diet. So um, recipe, very straightforward. Uh, there's really only two things you need, and that is uh, streusel and fruit jam. So, you know, I, I assume you're going to make your own streusel. Very easy to do. Um, I, I'm, I used a, uh, a recipe or like a set of ratios from Sola L. Whaley, uh, who puts out great food content. Uh, I, I think I've, I've shilled her Blondie recipe before on the podcast. You should check out Sola's stuff. Uh, she is excellent. What is streusel? Because I, I know, obviously I know, but some people might... <laughs> Some people might not know what streusel is. It is, um, it's it's a wonderful thing that's largely okay. That that clears it up. No, it's so it's um, it's basically just like dry ingredients that you add enough butter to that it could either be a crumble or a solid. Okay. So it, it's the type of thing where if you pack it together, it'll kind of hold together as if it's a little snowball. But if you squeeze it, it'll completely crumble back to individual granules. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, the so the streusel itself for the amount of bars that I made is four and a half cups of all-purpose flour, uh, two cups of some sort of granulated sweetener. Plain sugar works fine. Uh, I made my own caramel sugar, which that's another thing. Double to play us out. Let's take a, a quick little caramel sugar detour. So um, I, I don't know why it occurred to me to try this, but I, I did this for the first time maybe like six months ago. It's excellent. Now I keep it on hands at all time. Um, so you, you make caramel, you uh, cool it. You, you don't mix any sort of fat or cream in as if you were making like a caramel sauce. You just make caramel. Like you cook the sugar till it starts caramelizing pour it into a pan, you let it completely solidify, and then you throw it into a food processor and just let it go until it's completely granulated. And then it behaves just like sugar, except it tastes like caramel. So it's excellent. Um, so anyway, I, I did 50-50 uh, brown sugar and caramel sugar, but any sort of granulated sweetener works fine. So two cups of that, uh, two cups of some type of textural mix-in. So it could be nuts, could be dried fruit, uh, I just went with oatmeal because um, I personally like oatmeal for, for fruit bars. I, I think it goes well. Uh, and then 30 tablespoons of butter, which is uh, almost four sticks. So you melt that, you pour it over, you just, oh, and, and just a, a pinch of salt. So that's your streusel. You mix it all together. Uh, check the texture just by seeing if it will hold together if you squeeze it, but still crumble. Uh, if it doesn't still crumble, if it still holds together a little bit too much butter, just add some more flour. And if it won't quite hold together yet, add a little bit more butter. It's very easy to tweak a streusel. Um, so that's your streusel. And then the, the only other thing you need is some form of fruit jam. You can either make it yourself or you could buy it. And that's it. That's all there is to it. So you take two thirds of the streusel. Uh, you put it down in a parchment lined baking sheet. Uh, for this amount of streusel, it could either be two smaller baking sheets or one very large baking sheet. Uh, mine's like 19 and a half by 11 and a half inches. So it's, it's a pretty big baking sheet. And this was the correct amount for a sheet that large, uh, you push, you, uh, take 
about two thirds of the streusel, place it down in the pan, press it flat, uh, make sure there's no little holes where the jam could flow through to the bottom of the pan. Um, you know, you're lining a pan with some sort of, of doughy component. Pretty straightforward. Uh, then you take the jam and you put it down on your streusel layer. And uh, I, I think, I don't know the exact amount of jam you should use. I weighed mine. It was it was like uh, 2,100 grams, give or take. Um, so I don't know. Is that like two liters of jam? That seems like a lot. I don't know. Whatever. Just get a bunch of jam and just kind of play it, play it by ear, play it by eye. Uh, you want there to be about the same thickness of jam as there is your bottom streusel layer. So uh, maybe a, maybe about a quarter of an inch, possibly a little bit uh, thinner than that. Uh, so you put the layer of jam down, then you take the other third of your streusel and you, you just crumble it over the top, pop it in the oven at 350. And uh, again, I didn't I didn't time it. I don't know how long I baked it for. Maybe like 40 minutes. It's hard to say. Uh, but it was 350 Fahrenheit, and I just went until the uh, the top streusel layer is starting to toast a little bit. You can smell those nice toasty flavors, and the jam is bubbling around the edges of the pan. Once you get there, it's done. You let it cool, uh, ideally cool in the fridge so it'll solidify a little bit more. Cut it into bars and uh, eat them. They're so good. Um, I it, it, it is... Other than ice cream, because ice cream is my favorite kind of desserty type thing. But outside of ice cream, I think it might be my favorite uh, sweet confection that I've made. Maybe not ever, but but certainly in a long, long time. What is the texture like on a spectrum from like, you know, Fig Newton is very soft and moist. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I would anchor it with the nature valley granola bar that if you break it it creates like 700 crumbs where does it fall on that it's somewhere between the two um it's certainly not as it's not as crunchy or crumbly as a granola bar um but there is certainly more of a textural contrast than a fig newton like you you have to use your teeth a little bit to to get through it um but obviously the jam is very very soft yeah yeah, as soon as we get done recording, you can have one. Cool. That sounds great. Yes, sir. All right, good stuff. Uh, well, thanks to everybody for joining us in the totally immersive Stronger by Science uh, multimedia event here, uh, formerly known as the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. Let us know what you think about the, the new format. If you're watching on YouTube with video, uh, you know, let us know if you like it. We, we certainly are open to continuing it into the future. But the big news, like I said, is... Um, uh, what's the date? September 16th, right? Uh, I think it's September 16th. It, it, it'll be a week from when this drops. Correct. Yeah. A week from when this episode goes live, September 16th, 8 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to have the Stronger by Science live stream on YouTube uh, to celebrate uh, the release of Macro Factor, our diet app. We're also going to talk all about what the app does, probably answer some listener questions. Should be a good time, uh, and we'd love for you to join us live, and we will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.